When I was eight, I wanted to be Miss Marple. I still do. Miss Marple knows everything about everyone. But nobody knows anything about her. Miss Marple was at the back of her garden, wrestling with her roses when Dolly Bantry called by. The green fly had got to them again and she was determined to see them off. Dolly would just have to wait for her tea. Miss Marple gave a vigorous spray shh, shh, from her bottle of lemon-scented chemicals. She shook the pink petals ever so gently and untied her garden apron. She rubbed her hands and gave one of her small, barely noticeable smiles. Miss Marple, by me, aged eight. That, my friends, is the opening of my book girl with dove and that passage was written when I longed to be Miss Marple a reading life a writing life with writer and teacher Sally Bailey produced by Andrew Smith I'm finding myself recording with my hat over my head, or rather the headphones over my hat, which is on my head, obviously. The absurd things we do for art. My little neighbour is coming around shortly. Magnificent Maeve Magnus. She comes round most evenings to watch Ecule Poirot with me on my laptop. And we practice our characters getting into character. Maeve is very good at observing human foibles, the way Hercule Poirot walks and speaks, and we practice our versions of these characters, imagining we might be in their company, having tea, having tea with Hercule Poirot and all his foibles. Maeve, I'm still thinking about that Hercule Poirot that we watched the other night. I think I was a bit scared when that lady came through the window pretending to be a ghost. Were you scared? No. <laughs> You're braver than me, but I do remember you were doing something with the volume button. <laughs> I was turning it down. Because <laughs> you didn't want to hear the ghost, did you? Can you remember what the story was about last time? There was that big house... So there was a girl who wanted, who didn't have money for the house. So she murdered her cousin to have the money to buy the house. Yeah, that's exactly right.
And when we watch Poirot, we decide, we play a game where we decide which character we prefer and we don't tell each other. Now, I think you always know that I prefer... Miss Lemon. <laughs> Felicity Lemon. Lemon. What do we, why do you think I like Miss Lemon? Because she writes. She does. She writes for Hercule Poirot. She writes down his notes and she sends off messages to the laundry about his shirts. And do you remember about his shirts? Yeah, they're too tight and itchy. And we realise that Hercule Poirot is very fussy. He's very fussy. And you are very good at noticing his mannerisms, the way he acts. And do you remember how he sits in a deck chair? So he first brushes it off with his brush he has in his pocket. And he gets a towel and puts it on. Then he can sit down, but he goes with it. Oof, on the chair. <laughs> I think that's a French. Oof, oof, boof, oof. Because actually there is a sound like that in French. You're absolutely right. Now, who is your favourite? Mademoiselle Lemon. You like <laughs> Miss Lemon. We both like Miss Lemon. I like the way that Miss Lemon does her hair. She always has that curl stuck on the side of her face. And the other thing about Miss Lemon is that she always has a good clue. She tracks down the clues and they reveal something. Whereas poor Captain Hastings, what do we have to say about Hastings? He gets told off. He's always in trouble. What's he in trouble for most of the time? Getting it wrong. <laughs> he gets it very wrong, doesn't he? And he gets it very wrong with the ladies. And what does Captain Hastings always say? He's always saying something out loud. He's got his funny sayings. Oh, God. <laughs> he says, oh, golly gosh. And then he says, oh, really? Oh, really? That's a bit much, don't you think? But then he also says, good grief. Good grief, Poro. I say... Can you think of a phrase Ecupero says in French? How does he say my friend? Mon ami! <laughs> mon ami! And you notice when he doesn't say it, you say he hasn't said mon ami. I think it's because he doesn't like that person. That's a clue. He says mon ami to Hastings all the time. Hastings, mon ami! Hastings, mon ami! I'm going to party now. Okay, no more questions. You want to party now? What kind of party? Dance party. <laughs> Dance party. Okay, let's get the lights on. Let's get the lights right. We're going to have a disco. We've got to get the lights right. Over and out, over and out. The party is going to start soon. <laughs> has gone to the weir to see if she can find the stray dog that's been nesting down by the weir. And I'm thinking now about 
the role of Agatha Christie in my young childhood, my early literary life. I read Agatha Christie, all of them, so I believed then, at least all that they had in the local library, from the ages of seven to nine. But I think I peaked on Agatha Christie, age eight. And one of my favourite mysteries is The Body in the Library and Murder at the Vicarage. And those two mysteries inform the mystery of the child's coming-of-age story in my first autobiographical work, Girl with Dove. I'm thinking about what it is that I loved so much about Christie as a child. If I think about the body in the library, I'd put my finger on it. It would be that sense of spacious architecture. A bit like a Cluedo board. I love the idea that there were many rooms in Dolly Bantry's mansion. Dolly Bantry being the local lady of the manor. She rings Jane Marple on the morning that she finds a body in her library. A young girl with platinum blonde hair dressed in an evening dress, an evening gown. Causes a great hullabaloo at breakfast time or pre-breakfast time. Dolly Bantry hasn't even had her first morning cup of tea. Jane Marple is a kind of fairy godmother. But she's also Dolly Bantry's friend. She's loyal and true and steadfast, and she comes over as soon as she's asked to. And both these women are ladies, and they prescribe to certain kinds of ladylike manners, what we might call gentility, the genteel mode. That also fascinated me because we did not have much gentility in my household. There wasn't any room to be genteel and there were too many bodies, all of them alive, none of them dead, except the body of my brother David, who went missing when I was younger. Just at the time I was beginning to learn words. David, baby David. But his body was never found, at least not by me. What I also loved about those books was a sense of luxury. I longed to feel the plush carpet in the library. I imagined there was a thick, warm, plush carpet beneath my feet, which would replace the thin, worn, shamefully dirty grey, once upon a time pink carpet that lay down in our front room, which was scuffed and torn and full of stains which my mother tried desperately to cover up with one rug or another. And as I sat on our stained, threadbare carpet, I imagined transferring myself to the carpet in Dolly Bantry's library. So I'm sitting here in the dark with Agatha Christie's The Body in the Library. And Dolly Bantry is having a lovely early morning dream. Mrs Bantry was dreaming. Her sweet peas had just taken a first at the flower show. The vicar, dressed in cassock and surplice, 
was giving out the prizes in church. His wife wandered past, dressed in a bathing suit. But as is the blessed habit of dreams, this fact did not arouse the disapproval of the parish in the way it would assuredly have done in real life. And that's why I adore that opening, because it's not straight. It's a dream state. And it's absurd and English and comic and pantomimic and surreal and very wonderfully silly. Wonderfully absurdist English nonsense. It's the stuff of Alice in Wonderland taken into an English village. And it's very stagey, and it's as though Christie wants us to imagine Mrs. Bantry's dream as being something like a theatrical scene, a mise-en-scene, because that is, I think, how we dream. We dream as though we were on stage. Somewhere in her inner consciousness was an awareness of the usual early morning noises of the household. The rattle of the curtain rings on the stairs as the housemaid drew them. Rattle, rattle. The noises of the second housemaid's dustpan and brush in the passage outside. Bash, bash. In the distance, the heavy noise of the front door bolt being drawn back. Bolt, bolt. I see that Christie is also focusing strongly on words as objects, object words, including the sounds made by objects when they come into human contact or when humans are moving them about or when humans are just moving like an object, like an animate object. Footsteps, footsteps, step, steppity step, 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 step along the passage. Footsteps that were too hurried. Her ears listened unconsciously for the chink of china. But there was no chink of china. The repetition of chink comes again and again. We're supposed to hear that as something disturbing Mrs. Bantry's sleep, the chink of china. And so Mary arrives with the knock. The door opened. Semicolon. I like the pause that Christie gives us. The door opened. Semicolon. Mrs. Bantry is still in charge of stage directions. So it's a sentence that sounds like stage directions. Now there would be the chink of curtain rings as the curtains were drawn back, full stop. But there was no chink of curtain rings, full stop. Out of the dull green light, Mary's voice came. The dull green light is good. It's a strange and unfamiliar light. It's not the light of sun, and it's not the light of a lamp. The dull green light throws me off slightly. The light outside of the green trees, perhaps, foliage, perhaps, throws me off. 
There's a lovely kind of artificiality to it, which concurs with this idea of theatre, theatre lighting. Out of the dull green light, Mary's voice came, breathless and hysterical. Oh, ma'am, oh, ma'am, there's a body in the library, ma'am. There's a body in the library, ma'am. Maeve Magnus and I have spent many unhappy hour practicing sounding like Dolly Bantry from the body in the library. But Jane, there's a body in my library. And we both think that sounds wonderful. So yes, I have had quite a bit of practice. Jane, there's a body in my library. Just now, with my door open, in the hot midday sun, I saw a beautiful dragonfly flitting in and out, and I tried to capture it on camera, but it flew away, which I think is exactly what a dragonfly should do when a lady with a hat on comes towards it to try to capture it. And I'm reminded of the way in which Virginia Woolf writes about insect life. She speaks um, very fondly of insects and they become metaphors for her way of seeing the world, the minute and the small. But she often uses the word flitting. Flitting. We glimpse the world of flitting, which is just what's happened to me. I've glimpsed a flit and it flitted away, my flit. And I'm thinking now also of another woman who has captured my imagination for years, Miss Marple. I'm also thinking of the televised version of Miss Marple, which I saw when I was maybe 10 or 11 years old, starring Joan Hickson, and the way in which Joan Hickson was able to capture Miss Marple's interrogative voice by gesture, her sense of circumspection when it came to seeing those around her, she clearly considered to be beneath her in terms of her range of intelligence and the sharpness of her mind. She used to cock her head sideways like a little bird, Joan Hickson. She had these wonderful deft gestures, the way she would touch a door handle or indeed somebody's shoulder or the side of a table, there was a gentleness and a firmness to it, but a surety of her own way of seeing. Oh, I say, she used to say, oh, I say, Inspector, oh, I say. Well, yes, well, well, if you think so, well, if you really think so. And that was her way of essentially questioning the inspector in front of her, Inspector Jap, usually. Well, if you really think so, Chief Inspector. 
She'd speak very quickly like that, as though she were swallowing up the idiot in front of her. And I'm considering, once again, the delight I used to have in seeing an old frail woman with her head cocked sideways, looking at the chief inspector as if to say, Well, you really are a fool, aren't you? Well, you really are a fool. Well, if you say so, inspector. Well, well yes, yes. She had this wonderful way of saying yes. Well, yes, yes. And what she really meant was no. The opposite. She was being ironic in the most polite way possible. Suffering fools gladly. Miss Marple is an amateur professional. She supersedes the professional who is insufficient, who is unworthy of being called that. And Miss Marple never says that exactly, but she implies it. And I think I learnt the art of implication from Jane Marple. And I say this to my students, you don't need to say it exactly, but you can imply it. And the way we imply things is often by gesture and tone. We live in a world that is so blatant, we have to signal everything all the time. And I'm getting very bored by that over-signaling and over-gesturing and overstating. I don't know about you, but I find it very patronising. I prefer my literature, my art, and perhaps even my people to be impliers. We can imply something without overstating it. We are not all fools, after all. And that dragonfly at my door this morning, he, she, they, it, was implying a presence. And then it left. It left me with its presence, and that was a kind of flitting implication of a life form. And I'm sure that Miss Jane Marple would have noticed the dragonfly and might have exclaimed, Oh, well, I say. Oh, yes, oh, yes. Very beautiful, very beautiful. And then she would have had something to say about the insect life. She probably knew about dragonflies. Miss Marple was also a biographer. She is a biographer. She's still alive in my mind. And she was often unreeling from her memory. Stories, life stories of the people she had lived alongside for decades in her village of St. Mary Mead, which I believe was supposed to be somewhere in the Cotswolds, not far from here, maybe 10, 15, 20 miles away. Somewhere perhaps near Morton-in-Marsh, which is a real place, you can get the train there. In fact, I've been invited to Morton-in-Marsh in early June, and I shall go, and I shall think of Miss Jane Marple as I sit in my tea room, observing those coming and going as she used to do. Her tea room is called the Ginger Cat. How's that for a name? 
the ginger cat. And I shall sit and observe and cock my head sideways and think of myself as an amateur professional, which is perhaps what being a writer is. Being a writer is full of knockbacks and rejections and maybes and couldbes and perhaps. Full of perhaps. Well, perhaps if you did this, or perhaps if you took that out, or perhaps if you reframed it this way, or perhaps if you saw that character differently, or perhaps if you gave us more dialogue, or perhaps if you told the story differently. I'm cocking my head sideways now as I think and consider the world of perhaps. That's the, that's the world you have to be in as a writer. It's a perhaps moment. Everything is a perhaps, a might be, a could be, a possibility. You have to be infinitely flexible. There and not there. Miss Jane Marple is one of these. Theirs and not theirs. She's sitting in the tea room and people don't always notice her. And I think that's what makes her a great observer and a great narrator. She blends into the background. Not exactly like that dragonfly, but like something organic and living. Like the ducks outside my boat, who although they make a lot of noise, blend into the scenery. Particularly when they're nesting. They nest and they camouflage and they camouflage and they nest and they observe and they watch. And they sit and they sit. And in order to be a writer, you have to sit in a nest of sort and that nest is other people's lives and other people's stories and other people's histories. And you have to start to surmise and to guess and to divine and to exist in a world of perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Thank you for listening to A Reading Life, A Writing Life with writer and teacher Sally Bailey. Produced by Andrew Smith. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like it, give us a review, or mention us to friends or on social media. Thank you.